LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com I am officially running for President of the United States. I am pleased to endorse Donald Trump. I do like me some Trump, I gotta admit. I am proud to be here to endorse Donald Trump for President of the United States. He is truly pro-life. I'm very pro-choice. Millions and millions of women are helped by Planned Parenthood. America's tired of being walked on. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. I love the poorly educated. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh. America is tired of being treated second class. I'm not a fan of Megyn Kelly. I think she's a third-rate reporter. Third-rate reporter. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Nobody respects women more than I do. You said you've never heard her fart. I can say the exact same thing about Melania. Anal and right. this and that. You're not into Did uh, you no, do that no, with I'm her? not into oh. No, I didn't do that with them. We bend over and say thank you. Why do people think it's egotistical of you to say that you could have gotten Lady Di? You could have gotten her, right? You could have nailed her. I yeah, think I could have. If it was Pam Anderson and Whoopi Goldberg, who do you do? Well, you know, right now I have to go with Whoopi. <laughs> no! the United States military deserves a commander-in-chief who loves our country passionately and will never apologize for this country. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? Excuse me, excuse me. I've been so lucky right, in terms of that whole world. Because You've never gotten a, a social disease. It, it is a dangerous world out there. It's it is. Scary. It's like Vietnam, sort it, of like, you know, the it Vietnam is. It is your personal Vietnam, isn't it? It is my personal It is. You've Vietnam. said that many I times. I like a great and very brave soldier. I will absolutely apologize sometime in the hopefully distant future if I'm ever wrong. I'm in it to win it. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. He is committed to leading this country in an effective way. I'm going to bomb the shit out of them. How are you going to make them pay for the wall? I will, and the wall just got 10 feet taller. This guy used a filthy, disgusting word on television. He's a the big wonder. Schlong. Major. Major. Political bull. Listen, you mother we're going to tax you 25%. And he should be ashamed of himself. He's walking out like big high fives, smiling, laughing, like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. Are you ready to make America great again? We do whatever we have to do. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Gary Lockman who joins us to discuss his book Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Millions of people were shocked, surprised and even horrified by Donald Trump's election as the 45th President of the United States. From the outset his detractors considered his candidacy little more than a sick joke, a populist publicity stunt designed simply to further his own career at the nation's expense. 
Behind a public facade, however, unseen forces were at work, and as the campaign wore on, those convinced of Trump's imminent failure became less and less sure of themselves. His victory turned their world upside down. As pathetic as Hillary Clinton's campaign was, something else was needed to explain Trump's seemingly unlikely triumph. But just what might account for this polarizing paradigm shift? Invisible to most, within the concentric circles of Trump's regime lies a cabal of occultists, power seekers and mind magicians whose influence is on the rise. Did the power of positive thinking and the much vaunted practice of manifesting help put Trump in the White House? Are there any other hidden powers of the mind at work in world politics today? In Dark Star Rising, Lachman lifts the lid on magical and esoteric ideas that are impacting political events right across the globe. From so-called new thought to chaos magic and far-right esotericism, we follow a trail of mystic clues that involve, among others, positive thinking pioneer Norman Vincent Peale, objectivist philosopher Ayn Rand, Russian President Vladimir Putin, the alt-right Pepe the Frog, and various domineering gurus and demagogues. We have now entered a mind-bending matrix of occult politics where post-truths and alternative facts proliferate and where change is the only certainty. In the early 21st century, the borders between fantasy and reality have begun to blur and break down. If anything can be said with any conviction, it is that there will be much more chaos to come. Hello and welcome, Gary, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Okay, today, Gary, we're going to be talking about uh, your recent book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. As usual, before we get started, just for any listeners who don't know, let's just give us a little bit about who you are, your career. Well, uh name is Gary Lockman. I've um, written quite a few books about... Um, the Western esoteric tradition in the context of um, what we can call an evolution of consciousness. And before I uh, was doing that, I was a musician many years ago, uh, <laughs> longer ago than I uh, care to remember sometimes. Um, back in the 70s and early 80s, uh, I played with um, uh, Blondie. He was in the original lineup for Blondie. I had my own band um, for a while, and then I played with Iggy Pop. Uh, but that is quite some time in the past, and um, for the last 20 years or so, which gives you an idea how long ago it is. For the last 20 years ago, I, I, I've been I've been writing books um, about, um, as I said, sort of the Western inner hermetic esoteric tradition. Okay, well, in my recorded introduction, I've set out basically uh, the synopsis, you know, the background to the book. So we can take that basic background as read for listeners. Just going back to the moment when Donald Trump got elected when it emerged on that fateful night that he was in fact going to be the next president of the United States of America. On the on the internet, the social media sphere, people I knew, people I didn't know, but all those connections, the whole thing just lit up in absolute disbelief. And we can talk about some of the ways actually what this is much more predictable than a lot of people would let on. But you personally, um, you know, where were you on that evening? How much attention did you pay to it? How did you feel when it was actually became, no, this is actually happening? Were you like, well, yeah, of course. Or was it still part of you that was like, wow, I didn't actually think this was going to happen? Well, when I first heard that uh, Trump had put his hat in the ring, as they say in the States, and, you know, uh, declared that he was going to run, um, my immediate feeling was that he was going to win. And um, 
I felt that because it struck me as what would make the most sense, uh, you know, these days uh, when the most popular thing on television is reality. Uh, so that there would be a, a sort of exchange on the other side where you would have a reality TV celebrity as, you know, President of the United States. And so that was my first sort of feeling. It, it just sort of made sense given the kind of uh, character of our um, kind of uh, culture uh, these days. Um, and um, I didn't particularly pay too much attention um, to his campaign or anything like that, but increasingly I became aware of, you know, parts of it and and, and, and uh, the sort of the fellow travelers and people around him and all that. Um, but on the morning when I woke up and to see that he he had indeed won the election, I, w- I was stunned. It, some part of me, even though, a conscious part of me thought, yeah, you know, it makes most sense that he would win. Another part of me didn't actually, you know, believe believe that he would. And not so much that I wanted um, Hillary Clinton to win, but I just thought that, um, well, as many people did, like Trump is just, you know, they're not uh, not the best person to be president of the United States. Uh, but um, then, lo and behold, uh, he had won, and that was it. And it did feel that something had changed. It did feel that there was a, a sudden shift um, in uh, the character of our time. And that's why in the book, I... I sort of say that uh, Trump. We can see Trump as the singularity. Um, you know, this notion of a singularity is um, s- some something at which the normal laws and rules of something break down. So in physics, it's a black hole. Um, so the normal uh, laws of physics, physics don't work uh, at, at a black hole, and it's it's kind of empty. Uh, that's why it's black, and that's why it's a hole. And in um, sort of new age philosophy, the idea of the singularity is some uh, millenarian event um, down the line uh, when uh, things would suddenly change and uh, the conditions of life would be radically different. But um, I think, you know, Trump, indeed, his election did create a sense in which things had changed and things were very different and nothing was going to be the same again. Uh, the normal rules, uh, the normal run of things uh, seemed to have stopped then and things had taken a strange turn. And um, Soon after the election, uh, this this became even more uh, clear uh, when the events that actually led to my writing the book uh, started happening out in the news. Did you vote? Uh, yes, I did. I, 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 vote, I voted by mail. Okay, well, it's just I wasn't sure if you participated in the political mm. process in that way. What amazed me, or what amazes me, um, continues to do so, is not so much that people I knew, most of the Americans that I know, lean to uh, the democratic side of the equation, shall we say. And I wasn't surprised that they were kind of up in arms and in disbelief and it, it could have enraged by this turn of events. But it was to the extent to which intelligent, thoughtful, informed people of my acquaintance seemed to participate in this sort of losing of their minds thing that a lot of people got caught up in. That is to say, they could not accept this verdict. And it's like they were... They were in the. It's kind of backed off a little bit now, but certainly in the the immediate the immediate aftermath of Trump's election, and by that I mean a few months, they were online every day. I don't know what they were doing offline the rest of their lives, but <laughs> basically saying this has to be overturned, undone. Uh, we don't care. Uh. We don't care how we go about this. This man ha- must be removed from office. We must find a way to do it. And I was trying to stay quite as objective as I could about the whole thing and say, well, hang on a minute, guys. Can't do that. A lot of people have disapproved of previous presidents and some 
how can I put it? Mm. There has been forces that have tried to unseat presidents with violence, but you know you can't really say these things. You've just got to, if you don't like this turn of events, you've now got to look at why they happened. And I think a lot of people were unwilling to look at what had led up to this, which for some people was like, yeah, we see things moving this direction. And I think a lot of people were unwilling to not only look at how dismal the Clinton campaign was, but just the other you know meta events and trends in the world that are in place mm. that that made this happen. Well, I think one of the things on the sort of the left, I guess, or the progressive side or the democratic side was that, uh, this, this shock of disbelief. Um, and I guess it was the reluctance to accept that there was uh, a large number of the American populace, uh, that actually found Trump attractive or, or so were so frustrated and so disenchanted with, you know, the, the Democrats and, uh, and so on, uh, that they thought, well, Anything is better than things continuing on. I mean, the, the thing with Trump, you know, aside from him being who he is and all that, was that he's a, you know, an agent of change. You know, there's this mystical idea of change when, when suddenly, when things become too stagnant and too, too set in their ways and they've been, um, you know, too fixed for too long. And, uh, you got a sense of, well, anything is better than this. And so, um, even though he seemed, uh, perhaps not as attractive as many voters would have liked, they figured, well, he's, he'll, he'll be something different. And, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, I, I think part of the, uh, attraction too with Trump, it wasn't, not so much the, the politics and the policy. It was, um, uh, sort of providing a kind of emotional state or, uh, as I say in the book, a kind of sense of meaning, a kind of larger picture. Um, and, um, not that I followed Hillary Clinton's campaign that much, but, um, it just didn't seem that, you know, she was able to do that. Um, that, uh, this, uh, some, some sense of a larger overarching, uh, kind of meaning or mission or dream or something like that. Whereas Trump, you know, whether it's true or not or phony, uh, isn't important. It's whether he can actually provide it. And that's what he does. I mean, he's an entertainer. You know, um, he, he provides fantasies. In some contexts, I guess you could say, uh, in his career as a, you know, a builder, uh, and real estate and so on, he actually delivers the fantasy. That's what you buy when you buy one of his flats in Trump Towers. But, you know, in other, other contexts, say in the political one or the, the demagogic one, which he's in now, he can, he can offer the promise of, uh, these fantasies being fulfilled and he doesn't necessarily have to provide it in the same kind of concrete way. But I think on, you know, the other, the other side, it wasn't quite the same thing. It was more, more of the same. That had been going on for a while, and people become disenchanted with that. Uh, and I think this is one of the important things, especially when you have a time when, uh, the one, as we are in, which is very fractured, and um, it's atomized and it's broken down into a variety of different uh, competing groups. If you have, you know, one strong theme, one strong idea, one strong um, motto, you know, "Make America Great Again," that 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 overrides. Uh, everything else. And, you know, it fills people with a sense of belonging to something larger than themselves. Talking about Trump as an agent of change, you know, when things had been static for too long, I mean, Obama paid lip service to that, didn't he? Because his mantra was hope and change, wasn't it? And people were frustrated with that because he made um, a great play of all this, but then people found, apart from presentationally, that it was actually the status quo again with a a nice modern, you know, media-friendly mm. gloss put on it and happy family and all the rest of it. So I think mm. that that was just another stalling measure, just sort of buying time for I don't know what. So, and this is very similar to what has happened with Brexit. I know this comparison has been made many times, but for me, these are functions of the same type of trends, that mm. there's a certain 
stasis that goes on for too long, pressure builds up, people want things to change, they get lip service, they get patronized, they get, uh, eventually then they get run down and called racists or whatever it happens to be, you know, small islanders or, you know, Mm, mm. the American version of that and it comes to just it comes to a head eventually and these are things that if they were addressed earlier perhaps the pressure points the points of collapse as you might want to call Mm. it could be could be avoided but for various reasons they couldn't be addressed so if people can see it and it's part of this bigger context and you can also argue actually that Russia had their own version of this whenever Putin eventually seized power that things could not go on as they were and so you know i think russia's gone through a very similar process but they just did it a while ago well i mean they well they they uh similar process but i think in a more intense um or extreme way because um in in the 90s um you know russia actually went through complete collapse well the ussr did and then russia as a separate country um you know it went through um Terrific uh, time, well, the time of troubles, which uh, Russia experienced, um, you know, after the sort of uh, end of the Muscovite uh, Empire and, and Boris Gudinov and all that. So it's something that is is familiar theme in Russian history. But um, what happened is is kind of chaos, and then the, their economy collapsed in the late nineties. And um, you know, in many ways, you can't blame. Or you can't really uh, sort of uh, blame anybody or Putin in particular for what happened, in the sense that he did do what. He's always said to have done is like pulled the you know the country together, got it out of chaos, you know, brought it up from its knees, and so on and so on and so on. So that's you know, but he stepped in at the time when the chaos was there, and I think with Trump, it's kind of like it's not chaos on the same scale, uh, but it's uh, a more of an internal kind of tension. Uh, whereas uh, in, in Russia, it was it wasn't so much an internal tension between different sort of forces within it. It was sort of you know the whole country had fallen apart. Um, Whereas in the states you have, you know, it's it's incredibly polarized now. It's it reminds me very much of when I was growing up in the 1960s, when you know you had a variety of uh, civil rights demonstration, race riots, uh, other other uh, social violence and things of that sort. And again, that was the the decade of uh, of assassination and so on. So um, I think you know that's. One hopes it doesn't get to that uh, in the States, but, you know, uh, you never know. I mean, one of the things I've found over the years, I've been sort of doing kind of history, um, you know, uh, picking up kind of history along with what I've been writing about, is that, you know, anything can happen, you know, uh, and it doesn't take much uh, to set things off. You know, we talk about um, Russia. I mean, when I was growing up, the Soviet Union was, was there. It was, you know, the other great power in the world, uh, and it doesn't exist anymore. And so, so these sudden changes and shifts can can take place, and uh, you know we're not always uh, prepared prepared for them when when they happen. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the magic part of the your book's title and the whole equation here. And in this instance, we're referring to what's now called a new thought, quite a nebulous mm. term, but reflecting a lot of what people may know as so-called positive thinking. This is something that's got quite a long tradition, but is as popular as ever. Some people talk about it in terms of manifestation. That is to say, turning your thoughts to the reality you're experiencing if you want to make some sort of change and the potential for that to actually occur. The mechanisms for this are not understood. Maybe they cannot be, but many people claim results, you know, that this can have an effect. Uh, I personally am a believer in it. That is to say, um, I found it to be true that what you think your expectations, your attitudes seem to have an effect, uh, an effect on what occurs. So if you can speak to that in this context, that is to say that Trump now 
this, we can talk about his history as a positive mm. thinker and you know how he's uh, his personal and business life been affected by that but then also to the extent that this his election was somehow mm. made to happen in some way or made more likely yes. by a mass of people wanting something maybe not able to articulate it very clearly but just a generalized <laughs> desire all right well i think maybe um best way to do this is to sort of start with how actually wound up writing the book um and um just very soon after um trump's election uh there was a group called the national policy institute uh, the npi uh and that's a innocuous name for an organization that many people uh believe to be rather on the white supremacist side of the of the far right spectrum and um the head of npi uh then is uh, richard spencer and richard spencer is also the person uh, responsible for founding the alt right the alternative right which is a new kind of far right let's say kind of counterculture uh, that differentiates itself from earlier sort of white supremacists or sort of neo-Nazi groups by being uh, sort of a bit more sophisticated and more intellectual and having more of a kind of uh, body of ideas uh, that they uh, articulate to uh, defend their views. And um, as I say, about a week after Trump's election, um, the NPI had their annual meeting and they had it at the Ronald Reagan building in Washington, D.C. And at the beginning of the meeting, to start it off, um, uh, Spencer, who was a big Trump supporter on the alt-right and everybody in the room was a big Trump supporter. Um, he was, you know, flushed with, you know, victory. And, um, he addressed the crowd and he said, uh, you know, hail Trump. You know, hail our hero. Um, hail our victory. We made this happen. We made this dream our reality. We willed Trump into office and, and things of this sort. And, uh, he called it their victory of the will. And, um, what was, uh, even more surprising than than that uh, sort of introduction was the response from the people uh, at the meeting, and uh, there were many sort of Hitler salutes uh, and kind of you know chants and shouts uh, in response. Uh, Spencer later explained that they were Roman salutes, but if you watch uh, the video of it, you can um, uh, decide for yourself. And now this was something that was on the news. This was something that was um, all over the net and and uh, television, so it wasn't just you know, something you found on some strange uh, marginal um, website. <clears throat> and uh, and there was a lot written about it. Um, but of all the uh, different posts and articles that uh, I read uh, about this uh, incident, uh, one caught my eye, and it was um, by a fellow named Harvey Bishop. And uh, he is a New Thought blogger. Uh, and you mentioned New Thought. Well, New Thought is sort of a generic name for... Uh, a variety of different sort of philosophies and and, and beliefs that uh, share the, the fundamental basic idea that thoughts are causative. Um, thinking, uh, intense, vivid uh, visualization uh, can affect reality. Your, your thoughts can go beyond your mind out into reality and make things happen. And um, as you know, as you say, new thought is something that has a long history. It goes back to people like Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, in America and uh, William James, the uh, philosopher and psych psychologist, who actually used some new thought methods uh, uh, to cure himself of some ailments. It was known as mind cure back then. Um, and it goes back to Mary Baker Eddy and uh, Christian science and a variety of different uh, sorts of um, you know practices, uh, all having the same idea that you know your thoughts can affect reality. And um, but what 
you know, Bishop was saying was that, you know, oh, these people are using, these, the, these people, you know, the alt-right, Richard Spencer, they seem to be using new thought techniques to help Trump, you know, get, in, get into office. Um, now, how they went about doing it um, was through a strange new magical technique that involves the Internet, and we'll, we can get onto that later. Um, but the other odd thing about this uh, that made it... Uh, uh, rather interesting and intriguing was that not only was Richard Spencer and um, the alt-right and other sort of Trump uh, fellow travelers apparently using you know some form of new thought uh, to help him into office, but Trump himself is is a devotee and a practitioner of a variant of new thought, um, uh, as you say, uh, called uh, positive thinking. Now, positive thinking comes from um, the title of a book, The Power of Positive Thinking, by uh, the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, uh, who uh, Trump considered a mentor. Uh, Peale, for many years, um, uh, gave sermons at the Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue and 29th Street in New York. And um, Trump's parents, uh, his father was uh, a devotee of, of Peale's uh, philosophy and uh, a reader of uh, Power of Positive Thinking. Um, and when Trump was uh, a boy, he used to go with his parents to the sermons uh, at the church. And then later on in life, um, he, uh, when he was an adult, um, two of his weddings took place in um, the church there. So Peale was a very important figure uh, for him. He was one of the few people that Trump respected. I think the other one was was his father, um, but um, Peel's whole philosophy of positive thinking comes out of the whole school of new thought. It's a kind of Christianized version of new thought techniques, which themselves are rooted in a variety of sort of occult practices of, of visualization and different kinds of mind magic. And um, his whole idea was that facts aren't what's important. Uh, it's your attitude towards facts. It's your attitude towards the world that's important, not 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 the actual um, facts of the world. And out of this, we can we can. It doesn't take much to um, understand a connection uh, to the whole idea of post-truth and alternative fact that seemed to uh, suddenly pop into existence uh, after Trump's election. Uh, one of those things that led uh, me and other people to feel like, yes, the, the rules of the game have suddenly changed. Uh, suddenly, uh, there are facts and there's other facts. <laughs> suddenly, there's truth and then there's other truths, that sort of thing. And um, strangely enough, one of the connections I make in the book with that um, whole idea of post-truth and alternative facts is with postmodernism, uh, which is uh, a different story. Uh, than positive thinking and new thought, but which in many ways uh, shares similar ideas, uh, one of which is how malleable reality is. It's it's up for grabs. There isn't a, an objective um, reality with a capital R or a truth with a capital T somehow out there that we have to you know sort of uh, adapt to. No, reality and truth are things that we create ourselves and so on and so on. And where posit- postmodernism talks about that in sort of a philosophical kind of metaphysical kind of way um, with positive thinking, it's something that's, you know, much, much more practical and something that you can apply. And so you have, you know, you have a president who's a devotee of these ideas and he uses them in his own self-help books like The Art of the Deal and others where he applies his positive thinking uh, well, where he shows how he has applied the positive thinking to his own career and uh, shows his readers how they too uh, can can use it too. And then you have uh, these um, sort of Trump fellow travelers and and uh, far-right um, uh, sympathizers who want to get him into office using um, new thought techniques as well. 
Well, I think in terms of a, a paradigm shift that Trump's election is really on par with, with 9-11. That is to say, you know, an event that takes place and after which nothing will be quite the same again. And a lot of people thought that was a bit after 9-11. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's shook the world, but yeah, everything has changed, you know, because you had politicians saying that George Bush. Tony Blair, mm. people saw that as saying it for their own ends, you know, opportunistically saying, oh, we can pounce on this and use it for our own mm. devices. And you had Tony Blair's famous speech where he said, you know, the, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, the pieces are in flux. But there is a dimension of truth to that for sure. And I think we'll look, we'll look back in time at Trump's election and just say, yeah, after that, you know, there is no going back. I don't, we can't rewind to the time before Trump came on the scene. We just, that can't be done. No, I, I I think that's true, and um, as I say in the book, I think well, I mentioned postmodernism. I I think we're experiencing uh, what I call trickle down metaphysics, and um, this this starts uh, well a century uh, or or so ago um, with um, the philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who in the late 1880s uh, predicted the advent of nihilism. Um, in his uh, collection of notes that came to be known as the will to power, he begins by saying that he's telling, he's basically telling the history of the next 200 years. Uh, and this is the history of nihilism. And nihilism is, is the, the, not so much the belief in nothing, but the inability to believe in any of the values that were hitherto held. Uh, and so, um, the pursuit of truth, uh, goodness and, and, uh, those sorts of things that were kind of the, you know, um, the, the center of, of the Western, um, intellectual, um, uh, tradition. Uh, Nietzsche basically argued that those very, the very pursuit of those values of, of truth and reality led to uh, the insight that there is no truth with the capital T, there is no reality with the capital R, except for you know the sort of material, you know, you know, um, hard factual uh, materialist reality. There's no great higher Platonic reality or anything like that. Uh, and um, this was something that Nietzsche saw. He was one of the prophets who who, who could um, understand this, but the people of his time didn't recognize this. And at the beginning of his um, famous book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Zarathustra the prophet comes down from the mountain and he he's talking to the people in the marketplace, but they're not ready yet. They're not ready yet for his message. They haven't quite understood. They don't understand the great shift that's taking place. And Nietzsche says more or less that like I, I don't speak for today, not even for tomorrow, but I speak for the day after tomorrow. And I think what's happened is this vision that Nietzsche had, 200, well, I uh, said back in the 1880s, um, has trickled down from these metaphysical heights, and it's reached the lowlands of every day now. And postmodernism has been one of the agents of doing that. In fact, postmodernism is kind of the active um, face, we can say, of, of this kind of nihilism. Uh, and um, whereas someone like Nietzsche and others along the way recognized uh, the gravity of the situation recognized that, uh, the collapse of these values would, would leave us this kind of vacuum. Um, today, you know, we don't seem too troubled by it. We kind of just accept that it's the case. Oh, well, you know, the world's meaningless. Well, well, so what? More or less, whatever. Uh, and that's allowed the kind of sophistry that seems to have, like, taken us over now to actually, you know, dominate now. You know, uh, people talk about things in, in, in what seems to be the most sort of uh, earlier time, the most obviously, you know, uh, ridiculous ways, which now we just accept 
as uh, just the way it is. We can't ever say anything's true, anything's that, anything's that. We have to, you know, sort of hem and haw around it and have many, many qualifications. And this this strikes me, you know, very much as kind of, you know, the sophistry, let's say, that Socrates um, uh, wanted to fight back in ancient ancient Athens. And again, it's a, it's a certain thing where there's ability to use language, to use words, to change things around. It's the malleability of things. Uh, this kind of fluidity and flux um, that that the the character of things have taken now. Uh, that means that we really can't go back. I I I think that's really true. Um, I I also think that it's a it's a time that we have to go through in order to get through at the other end, as it were, sort of the dark night of the soul, uh, to get through uh, to some new integrated. A vision of things, which right now is anybody's guess. We don't really have a clear idea of it, but the need for that seems to me uh, striking. And this uh, sense of things being in flux is very nicely captured in in the context of, of, of Trump's administration, just in his sort of shifting, contradictory statements mm. and in his is 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 tweets which are kind of like little magic spells and mm. he can literally see he, he can just say something and whether it makes any sense or not is neither here nor there really but the people that go into paroxysms of of, of horror and delight at the same mm. time mm. and that that's incredible power you know just that one little thing is like how about this and people are like oh my god oh you know f- arms flailing and gnashing of teeth and people writhing around on the floor <laughs> other people punching the air and celebrating and it's incredible really well i think as i said he's an entertainer i mean um he's had years of practice of dealing with large audiences um you know both on television we know he was a, a fanatic about his ratings so he he paid a great deal of attention to what he was doing when he was on The Apprentice in order to keep his ratings up. And then he was in, um, you know, pro wrestling for a long time. So he knows how to work a room. He, he, know, he knows how to work a, a stadium and things of that sort. Uh, and again, this, is, this puts him in line with other, you know, great demagogues who were very, very good at um, always creating a kind of sense of expectancy, uh, a sense of anticipation of something something's always on the move something's happening you have to create the impression that there's you know some dynamic uh, energy and, and and movement happening um and um one of the other things i say in the book and uh i, I i've gone out of my way to say that uh, I, I don't mean this um to to stigmatize chaos magicians but um it struck me and it struck some other people too. I remember in the early days, uh, as you talked about all this, you know, flurry of activity on social media, where more than one person was saying, well, God, he seems to be, he seems to be doing a kind of chaos magic, just in the fundamental sense of what you said, where he's creating chaos around him. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's creating a flux. He's, he's keeping everybody on, on their toes. There isn't any stable, um, you know, uh, sort of bottom or foundation for what's going on everything is constantly moving and the hiring and the firing and you know he says one thing then he says something else and again if you read um his self-help books he says he says this he says this is what i like to do i i I don't like to stay fixed to any program i like to change things quickly i don't like to you know tell people what i'm going to do i like to keep people um sort of uh you know on their toes until the last minute and things of that sort and um yes he he seems to be doing this naturally he seems to be very good at creating this kind of atmosphere of um expectancy and um we've sort of come to expect things happening but even though we're used to it by now still he's able to create some kind of you know sense of of uh if not shock as you say it 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 always uh, gets an effect uh, from people and i think that's one of the things that 
people like him, demagogues, and as I say in the book, um, I make connection between demagogues and gurus uh, and magicians too. This is something they like to do. They like to have an effect on people. This is one of the main things they want to do. They want to have an effect. They want to be seen to have an effect. Um, and this is something that I think they need uh, in their personality. But I think it's also something that you know the people that go to them want to happen. You know, the people that are attracted to a, a, a guru um, are ripe for uh, the sort of situation they're going to find themselves in. And same uh, on a larger scale uh, with political gurus. Yeah, in the book you talk about, talking about demagogues, uh, you mentioned Hitler and Mussolini and other notorious historical figures and how they went about maneuvering themselves into power and recruiting support. And I've done a couple of shows in recent times where uh, that have included, well, in the tags, shall I say, you know, would be Trump and also maybe fascism or something like that. And I've had a few, hmm. a few people messaging in just saying, oh, come on, just stop all this Trump and Hitler stuff. But look, what we're trying to do here is draw parallels, not just say that Trump is behaving like Hitler. That's not what we're saying. Yeah. But in the book, I mean, you're, you're very clear about how Hitler and Mussolini made people feel, that uh. the people came to believe in them. And it wasn't necessarily to do with facts on the ground or anything. It was uh. the, these tangible, everyday, mechanical things. It was beyond that. You know, and it was religious in a sense. They were performing a function in people's lives that they just couldn't get anywhere else. And, and Trump's doing many of the same things because there's two different things going on with Trump, really. There's, there's what he's saying and how he's making people feel and what he's making them think and believe. And then there's just the basic everyday mechanics of the U.S. government, you know, but whether projects are getting built or, you know, payments are being made, that type of thing. These are different worlds. Well, I mean, I should point out that there isn't, uh, in the book, I, 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 I don't draw an equal sign, say, between Hitler and Trump or Mussolini and no, Trump no, or, or anybody like that. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, you're right. It's not like, no, it isn't as simple as that. But at the same time, there do seem to be resemblances. There do seem to be sort of, you know, resonances, uh, between, um, just, 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 just how they are, how they act, their MO. There's certain kinds of traits that are associated. And these are charis- these are what the sociologist Max Weber called charismatic leaders. Um, they have a certain, they're, they're, they're not political leaders in the sense that they have, uh, a very good political program, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, fantastic legislation and so on, uh, that they want to get through. Uh, no, they're, they're, they have a power of charisma and they excite certain emotions and affects in, in, in the, um, in the populace, you know, in, in their supporters. And that's what they're doing. And Hitler was one of those. And Mussolini was one of those. And I would say Trump is one of those too. I mean, what he has is a certain kind of charisma. And again, if you know anything about his history, I mean, he, he came alive at the same time uh, that the 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 New York sort of gossip, you know, the scandal sheets, the red tops were coming up, the post and all that. And what they needed was some, you know, somebody they could write about. And what Trump wanted was someone who would write about him. And so he provided them, you know, with ample copy. And he he started developing his his persona forty, you know, forty something years ago. I mean, strangely enough, it was around the same time when I was, you know, playing in New York um, uh, with Blondie ages ago in nineteen seventy five. I remember, you know, seeing him in the newspapers then and all that. Um, so I've, you know, been aware of him for 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 years. And uh, but um, this is characteristic of him. There's a, you know, he's an entertainer. He likes to address crowds. Uh, he likes to create an effect. And um, as you say, what these people do is they provide a kind of emotional satisfaction. And um, George Orwell, uh, in the 1930s, um, when he was he was writing about uh, Hitler and the rise of uh, National Socialism, and what he said was that um, the 
the people who voted Hitler in, um, they, 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 they didn't vote him in because he was going to make the trains run on time or he was going to give them better working hours or better working conditions or, you know, somehow, you know, improve the infrastructure. Um, they voted him in because he, he provided an emotional satisfaction. He gave them a sense of meaning in their life. And I think this is something, as I said, I mentioned it earlier, I think this is something that the people on the progressive side, they don't sort of recognize this. They don't sort of understand this. They, they, this is somehow, they tend to associate this is with religion. This has got to do with fascism and myth or some, this is the unconscious. This is all the dark kind of stuff we don't want. We want clarity and light and reason and all that and, you know, socialism and everything done with the math and <laughs> all that kind of thing. And, um, yes, you need all that to, for the workings of the government, as you say. But what Trump, I would say, has, uh, tapped is this need for a sense of meaning. And, and, and it's, it's a genuine, authentic need. We all have a need a hunger to feel that our lives are something more than just feeding ourselves, you know, just more than, you know, day-to-day, um, you know, creature comforts. We're part of something. And even if it's just, you know, your, your football team or something like that, or, you know, that, that, that need can be appeased in, 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 in different ways. But at certain times, say, you know, of, of social uh, tension and economic uh, uncertainty, so on and so on, it, it gets bigger and it affects the larger um, part of the uh, society. And unfortunately, or, you know, depending how you look at it, something that can pull society together is something like that. And again, just if you just look at what happened to Germany when Hitler did, um, you know, get into power, it, it, it did rise from being, you know, a country that was on its knees um, to, to a power. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but I'm saying that the ability of, uh, a kind of myth, a kind of shared sense of meaning, um, the 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 idea that you're all part of some common task uh, can can work uh, in, in incredible things. Well, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it, once you have the basic ones met, as you move up that sort of hierarchy, yeah. then meaning becomes very very important, meaning and purpose. But if you're in a situation that some people might say a lot of Western nations and certainly the U.S. is in, where you're starting to see increasing problems with delivering these basics you know you're having economic problems and Mm -hmm. resource problems and climate challenges then anybody who can kind of maybe vault over that and offer meaning despite Mm. all this hardship for some people that can go quite a long way because it makes it easier for them to to face or ignore or just live with material difficulties if they feel there's some kind of overarching mission or purpose that they're part of well, I think that's just, as you say, you're right. I think this is just part of um, human nature. It's 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 part of one of our needs. Um, it, you say Maslow, it uh, puts it up at the top of the hierarchy. It's it's um, actualizing need rather than a, de- a deficiency need. You know, if you're hungry, you need food, and so you're deficient in food. Whereas the meaning is something that um, it's something that you want to. It's a creative need in a way. You sort of you you sort of want to give yourself to something. You want to give yourself to some larger kind of thing. And for many people, you know, it could be religion. Uh, um, sadly, these days, again, you know, the fanatical expression of of radical fundamental, you know, uh, religion in, in different forms, mostly in, in in Islam, you know, that that creates this whole idea. Well, all oh, this is just, you know, we don't want any of this. This is just madness and fanaticism and all this kind of thing. Everything has to be rational, um, and, and so on. And, um, you know, at the same time, there are people who can find this kind of meaning on their own. They don't need to join, 
um, some mass movement. They don't need to, you know, become part of a cult. They, they, they don't need to get involved with the guru. They can find it on their own. And those are the creative individuals. And these are the ones that I, my, my hope for the future is, is based on these characters. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know who they are, but I assume uh, that they're out there. And, and they're confronting these issues, um, you know, um, in, in, in this creative way. And they're the ones who aren't joining this. And they're also the ones who aren't necess- aren't joining in, in this kind of constant, uh, you know, attack on Trump and haranguing. That, that, I personally don't feel that that's particularly helpful. Uh, and uh, there's nothing easier than to sort of, you know, rattle, um, you know, shake your kind of fist at the, you know, at, 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 at the powers that be. And um, uh, that to me, uses up a lot of energy and also, you know, gives a lot of energy to, uh, to those powers. I mean, I, I think one of the things that um, uh, charismatic leaders like Trump and others uh, need themselves is that kind of response. They, they need to feel like they're getting some kind of response. It doesn't have to be positive, you know, as, 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 as long as his name is in the paper, you know, as long as people are talking about him. So the more you kind of criticize him all the time, um, that's something that, you know, basically feeds on, I would say, and his supporters feed on as well. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't criticize at all, but uh, I'm talking about this kind of constant knee-jerk kind of, uh, you know, continuous kind of uh, rancor aimed at him that um, doesn't seem to be anything more than a kind of resentment. Yeah, and this is what I was referring to at the top of the hour when I was talking about people I personally know who I didn't speak to them about this, but I was looking at their online activity and thinking, wow, you know, you're just being completely thrown by this and you know energy flows where attention goes and we have to be very oh. careful about what we give our attention and energy to and in many ways clinton and throughout the election cycle but beyond that as well and all, all her supporters and all anyone who's opposed to trump really are oh. kind of like adding clay to like the tulpa the is where yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and and trump can draw energy from this and he understands oh, yeah, yeah, this sure. and of course yeah, another yeah. dimension of this is a lot of people still haven't grasped they think that if they present or remind us of, or whatever it happens to be, if they highlight Trump's lies and misdeeds, that this somehow will be his undoing. But for many people, those don't matter. It doesn't matter with Trump and this and that hooker, or whatever he said or did, or whatever mm-hmm. he changes his mind about. That These are just facts. That's all they are. And those are kind of like, they're not top of the list. No, I think the thing, one of the things... Um... I, I say in the book, and um, one of the things I remember reading early on when, you know, in, in the beginning of post-truth, in the beginning of alternative fact, when it was still kind of, um, you know, people were stunned. People were like, what? <laughs> on the news and all that. Uh, and um, it's the idea that he, he know, he, well, he and his representative, they, they know what they're saying isn't true. It doesn't matter. They don't care about being caught out in a lie and all that. That's the whole point of alternative fact. If that's all undermined, it doesn't matter. What matters is if you get the message across. You know, so the facts don't really matter so much. And you can tally up, you know, enough facts already. I mean, the thing was, if Trump was going to get, uh, at least it's how I feel. You know, I think if Trump was going to get, um, uh, you know, pushed out of office, uh, impeached or anything like that, it would have happened already by now. Um, you know, um, I, I don't think there isn't anything, you know, uh, enough there really uh, to do this to him. And um, I also think, again, I'm no political analyst and I'm just sort of seeing things from afar, but I think one of the problems with the, the other side is that they don't seem to have anybody, you know, charismatic on their side and they don't seem to have anyone you know, striking enough to sort of, you know, put forward as, as uh, a figure to kind of rally around. So, I mean, I, I, I'd i be very surprised if he isn't re-elected in, in, in 2020. And I, I would think the, you know, 
maybe the next really interesting election would be 2024. Okay, well, there's still so many people, as, you, as we said, in utter disbelief still about this turn of events. And I would just say, to go back to something we were talking about earlier when we were speaking about the power of positive thinking and new thought, I've done several shows, quite a lot actually, some of which were with you, where we talk about the potential mechanics of this. Recent ones I've done with Thomas Sheridan called The Secret Science of Sorcery. This is about mm. how the non-material may affect the material. Let's just put it that way. Mm. Um, on the On the actual subject of manifesting and popular self-help books, you know, and getting sort of, uh, you know, the, your, what you desire in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did one with Ken Elliott called Manifesting and the Mind Matter Matrix. A lot of the people that you've written about, uh, you know, in, in the world of uh, the, the mystical and esoteric, mm. were, to a greater or lesser extent, practitioners of this. Mm. They, they were trying to understand these mechanisms. Yeah. So if I would say to people, if you're out there and you're deeply opposed to Trump and everything he stands for, look at this information. Begin <laughs> Begin to understand how some of this may have taken place and then perhaps understand your own role in it and mm. and then maybe take a look again at how you interact with your reality and the world out there mm. because mm. you're having an effect whether you believe it or not you yeah. your, your thoughts are having an effect well i th you know i think one of the fundamental insights that comes from the esoteric philosophy in, in a variety of different forms is that your thoughts do affect reality um, I, I've been saying in some interviews, uh, unlike Vegas, what happens in the mind doesn't necessarily stay there. Uh, so, you know, what hap uh, and this is something that, um, is recognized by practically all of the great, you know, magicians and sages and, and mystics. Uh, and they, they, you know, they give warnings about it as well. Uh, you know, WB8 said that, uh, you know, what, 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 whatever is, um, sort of built in the imagination will accomplish itself in the, uh, circumstances of your life. Um, which basically means, you know, you should be careful what you wish for because it will, it will, it will come true in some form or another. And, uh, the thing is, I think, you know, someone like Yates and some of the, many other people, um, who have written about who, who have understood this in, in a variety of different ways. And, um, strangely enough, quite a few of them are poets. Uh, they, they, they don't sort of practice it in this utilitarian, practical kind of way that, um, kind of the, you know, the new, many of the new thought people do, you know, the sort of think and grow rich, uh, types, you know, uh, that kind of thing. They're, they're, they're not trying to use these powers to manifest, um, anything in particular, precisely because the very fact that they recognize, you know, this truth about reality is, it's much more important than any, you know, any particular kind of thing you might be able to manifest within the reality. You know, it's sort of like if, 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 if you could, uh, you know, somehow, uh, dematerialize yourself and materialize yourself somewhere else. Uh, you know, the kind of, uh, commonplace thought would be, oh great, I could go rob a bank with it. Well, you know, well, you know, the, the, the very fact that you could do have this remarkable power is even, you know, it's, is more, more of a treasure than any, any money you can get from it. So I, I think there's a certain, there's a certain pr profound, deep understanding of this and, and there's a bit more, I don't want to say shallow because I, I, I don't want to stigmatize, you know, the people that are trying to use it to better their lives in some way. Um, but, but there, there is, there is a, a more, um, superficial and, and utilitarian 
uh, or, or, or limited sort of approach to it. But I think fundamentally, in, in, in some ways, it's true. I mean, you have people like Rudolf Steiner, um, who I've written about, uh, I've written a book about, and I've also written about him in the context of, you know, other thinkers and the whole idea of the evolution of consciousness. His whole idea is that, well, the, the, the modern Western idea is that the, the mind is a blank until, uh, it gets, uh, material coming in through the senses. Uh, and this is what the philosopher John Locke said, you know, there, there's nothing in the mind that is in first in the senses. So when we're born, we're, we're blank slates, we're empty. And then, you know, sense data comes to us over time and it, it, it sort of collects inside our head in some strange way and, and it gets put together and that, that's what we call the mind. Uh, but people like Steiner and Jung and, and Yeats and Goethe and so many others uh, of the great, you know, minds of the 20, of, of the centuries in the West are saying, no, it's not like that at all. You know, when we're born, we're not blank slates. We actually come fully equipped with uh, a kind of blueprint for reality, which we project out into this world, and if we didn't have that, we wouldn't we wouldn't have this kind of world that we see around us. You know, we, we it's it's a kind of um, what do you want to say it? Uh, it? It's a kind of way in which we give order, you know, to um, the world around us, which would ordinarily be in, in a much more chaotic kind of state. And and this 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 relates to the whole Western mistaken idea of consciousness being passive. You know, we, uh, since Descartes, we have this idea that our consciousness is just like a mirror, and all it does is reflect, you know, the reality, what's out there. But what, you know, Plato and Jung and Goethe and all these other fellows I've been mentioning say, and say, no, it's the exact opposite. Uh, there's a kind of pattern, uh, there, there, there's a kind of uh, structure-making uh, principle um, that reaches out from the mind, out into the world, and it shapes the world, and, and creates a world for us to be in. Um, and the sort of practitioners of new thought take that to you know a, a next step and they you know want want to somehow on that foundation you know use it for kind of practical kinds of purposes uh and you know strangely enough i mean i mentioned chaos magic earlier um one of the connections that i saw between the two and again i want to say i don't want to stigmatize chaos magic or chaos, chaos magicians in any way i mean i i don't think trump you know ever heard of it and um i'm sure the chaos magicians you know uh are I'm particularly happy about, you know, being associated with him. Um, but both chaos magic and new thought and positive thinking, they, they're all results driven. They're all very practical. They, they all, they want to make things happen. You know, they're not particularly interested in ideas. They're not particularly interested in theory. I mean, that, my understanding, one of the reasons why chaos magic started, it started up sort of in the 70s. Strangely enough, it started up in the 70s around the same time that Trump was, you know, getting going in the 70s in New York in a completely different context. But it sort of started up in the 70s around, around the time of punk, and it was a kind of DIY magic, uh, where punk was a sort of DIY, you know, rock music. And, um, what, it, it, it was tired of the whole kind of Golden Dawn and even the Crowley kind of magic, which was much more about, it was much more sort of a mysticism. It was getting, you know, in touch with your holy guardian angel and it was finding your true will and it was sort of an in interior inner journey and voyage and all that. And they were just bored to tears with that. And what they wanted to do is make stuff happen. You know, they wanted to actually, you know, use magic to make something happen. I, I need money. I, 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 I want to sleep with that woman or whatever, stuff like that. And it, it was very, very practical. And that's fundamentally the same kind of attitude that new thought and positive thinking has. It's very practical. It, it wants to make things happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I get more out of it these days than I used to. But in the 80s, when I was a teenager, I read 
Crowley, I read Levi. Well, I say I started reading him, I didn't finish it because I think, what the hell? What the hell is this about? <laughs> you know. And then I discovered via a different route that if I wanted something enough and invested that desire with with emotion, that's like, uh. Uh, uh, hey, hang on a minute, something just happened. So uh. I kept all those old dusty tomes because they're kind of interesting, you know. But I can understand that desire for a departure, and you're putting that in the context uh. of the punk as well is is very apposite. Funny, you you mentioned a few moments ago, uh, think and grow rich, and this is of course the very well known, possibly the archetypal self help or get rich book by uh. Napoleon Nepo- Napoleon Hill. Yeah, he was an uh. um, American. This was in the early part of the 20th century. That this came out, uh. and I got to thinking when I when I read the mention of it in your book, I thought, now what Napoleon Hill did in order to try and divine some sort of like formula for for wealth or well-being was to interview all these american amongst mm. others but a lot of american industrialists and i what <laughs> would he have interviewed trump i wonder if if, if trump had been around oh, in the 20s you know <laughs> probably I, I wouldn't be surprised no i wouldn't be surprised no it kind of seems like it would make sense you know yeah we talk- well i mean say trump i mean if you if you read any of his self-help books that he presents himself as that sometimes you know i've i've used these methods and or this is how i do it this is how i've done it and um, it's intense focus, it's obsession, it's visualizing what you want, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, complete cutting out everything else. It's completely obsessing and focusing all of your thoughts and intensity on, on your goal. And this is, you know, fundamentally what new thought and positive thinking is about. And uh, that, that's what he, that's the message he puts across in his book. So, yes, I would say that if there was a, an equivalent of, you know, Napoleon Hill today, you know, they, they would certainly interview him. Well, we mentioned uh Russia earlier and and Putin and I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't subscribe to some of these ideas and methods um I've not read enough about him personally but he uh, after the collapse of the USSR uh Soviet Union when he maneuvered himself into place he was filling a sort of anarchy vacuum mm. and in many ways he's done his defining reality thing that Karl Rove would appreciate, you know, that mm, mm. he has just basically said, this is how it is. And he, a lot of people believe in Putin. If you see I me, mean, there's a cult mm. of personality around him. And mm. as far as actual practical situations on the ground, when it came to the situation in the Ukraine and then Crimea and currently in Syria, he has basically said, I'm not having this as in terms mm. of like what the U S and its allies might, mm, might mm. have wanted in these situations or the EU, or whatever he said, no, this is I'm doing this, and mm. he, that powerful action, backed up by that belief that I mentioned earlier, has definitely blindsided some of Putin's um, mm. opponents. There's no question about that. And mm. of course, when in your book, when you dig deeper into what's gone on in Russia in recent decades, and in, obviously the USSR prior to that, you start talking about some of the shadowy characters like uh, Alexander Dugin. I'm not quite sure mm. if that's the correct pronunciation of mm. his name. Mm. Uh, and then, but also mentioning him in context with people who've come up like Steve Bannon, for example, in the US. Yes. And, and again, the parallels kind of present themselves a little bit here and it's uh, it starts to get very shadowy and very fascinating mm. very quickly. Yes, yes, it does indeed. I mean, um, I, I don't know about Putin's own sort of personal practice, but uh, what I do understand about his KGB background, I mean, that would have quite a bit of the kind of, you know, focus and discipline, uh, that you would associate, you know, with, with, you know, the kind of positive thinking thing. It might not be directly that, but he certainly, um, you know, was someone who was very, uh, focused on his job, uh, and, and getting it done and being, being very uh, efficient about it. Uh, but when you talk about Dugan and, and Bannon and all that, I mean, that all came up, um, 
very well that came up very uh, soon into uh, Trump's administration um, in February 2017 there was an article in the New York Times about a speech that Steve Bannon who at the time was still you know on Trump's team uh, had given in 2014 to a select group uh, at the Vatican um, he was in Los Angeles and he spoke to a group called the Human Dignity Institute uh, via Skype and um, amidst the usual sort of rhetoric about the global you know Tea Party movement and fighting Islamic fascism and, and uh, economic nationalism and things of that sort um, he was talking about Putin and um, he was sort of you know uh, he was being very positive about him in some ways, but being very, you know, uh, sort of uh, wary and, and um, you know, uh, critical in others. But one of the things that he said that he, what he liked about Putin or felt a connection to, that was that Putin was a supporter of traditional values, you know, traditional family values and so on. Uh, and then in the context of saying that, he said that, yes, he has someone around him. Putin has someone in his circle uh, who's a reader of uh, Julius Evola. And this was the thing that the New York Times had had picked out and highlighted in in their headline uh, uh, for their article about this was Julius Evola. Uh, and if you know who Julius Evola is, well, you you wouldn't be surprised that they did this because Julius Evola was a uh, twenty early twentieth century um, esoteric thinker, uh, an Italian esoteric thinker, uh, who had very far right political leanings. And um, in the nineteenth uh, 20s and 30s, he tried to ingratiate himself first with Mussolini um, and then with National Socialism. And uh, oddly enough, um, Evola himself um, practiced a kind of uh, new thought or mental science. Uh, and for precisely the same reasons, or he uh, at one point he did practice it for precisely the same reasons uh, that uh, Richard Spencer and um, his Trump supporters did in order to influence um, current events. Uh, what Evola wanted to do in the 1920s uh, was he wanted to use magic to somehow inform Mussolini's fascists with uh, some of the ancient noble Roman virtues. And um, he performed rituals with members of a group he belonged to called the UR or UR group. Um, they were a group of esotericists and practicing magicians who contributed articles to um, a journal called the UR journal. And Evola wrote quite a few articles for this journal under different pseudonyms, but you can sort of by you know, uh, by his style, you can tell which ones um, you know written by him, and uh, more than one of them talks about precisely the same sort of thing, using the mind to be able to create reality. And he had a whole theory about what he called the absolute individual, uh, which was some kind of fundamental, rock bottom uh, sense of absolute self, in in which in some way you're able to manipulate reality through this. And again, in the book, I show how this is very much along the same lines as different new thought. Um, and chaos magician practitioners describe the mechanics of what you know what they're doing when they're when they're practicing uh, a new thought or, or chaos magic. Uh, and so, but again, you have so you have um, Bannon, who's um, you know on Trump's bench and his sort of uh, strategist there, uh, saying that he's a reader of Julius Evola, who was you know basically a very far right uh, esotericist. Um, and the person who he's alluding to around around Putin is this character named Alexander Dugin, as as, as you say, and he's he's had a, a, a remarkable career. He started out in the 
1980s as a sort of punk dissident uh, in the in the late uh, days of the of the Soviet Union, and then through a variety of different um, kind of quick changes, uh, political and ideological uh, sort of shape shifting, in which he combined a variety of different kind of totalitarian uh, far right views, um, eventually emerged as part of the establishment. And um, though he may not be exactly immediately in Putin's circle, he certainly has had influence on Putin. And he himself is um, very deeply interested in chaos magic, very deeply interested in the kind of far-right esoteric politics that um, Evola uh, promoted. Um, and he also, he himself practices a form of, of new thought. He calls it men activity, kind of mental activity. And again, it's the whole idea of visualizing. Um, and he has some very, very radical views about, um, you know, the way the world is going and where it should go. Uh, and uh, at times he's, you know, uh, well, what can I say? He's, he's, he's called for uh, more or less the apocalypse, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, to come on so that the, uh, the Western world can be finally, you know, obliterated because uh, it's a complete blight on the planet. And this new theocratic, um, organic uh, civilization that's, supposed to emerge out of out of Russia uh, uh, can uh, have its day. As far as Dugan's concerned, I will just say he's written many books, but one in particular, um, Foundations of Geopolitics. Mm. Um, I'm still trying to find a copy in English. They all seem to be in Russian, the ones that I've, I've seen for sale. But mm. that, that looks more like a grimoire than anything mm. else to mm-hmm. me, in a way. But what you're talking about, his anticipating of the apocalypse, mirrors something that I'd thought in terms of thinking about Evola and the traditional values and Mm, indeed mm. the traditionalist as a movement, I'm sometimes, I currently find myself a little bit unsure as like, are there eternal values which we've strayed from not talking necessarily about fascistic or far right ideas. Mm, mm, that's mm. they've got their own take on what those yeah, are. But yeah. you know, are there things that we've veered away from that we mm. just need to veer back towards, mm, or mm. do are we actually pushing forward through to something completely new as some sort of evolution? You know, falling off from this decline of culture. Uh, so mm. I, I find myself having sometimes conflicting feelings about mm. about where we are in all of this. Well, yeah, understandably. I mean, we're we're well. I think we're in a time when precisely that sort of thing. Uh, is going to happen more and more. But I, I think in a way, we, well, the, the perennial philosophy is this philosophy of these kind of yes. eternal values. And that, that in itself, uh, I mean, traditionalism kind of is a offshoot or it's, it, it's a very radical, fundamental kind of version of that, I would say. Uh, whereas the perennial philosophy is actually rather open. And I, I think you can, in some ways, work to work a kind of evolutionary theme with that as well. I, I know, to begin with, they, they seem mutually exclusive. It seems counterintuitive. Uh, but then I think, you know, in those in those moments of mystical insight, uh, which both the perennial philosophy and this kind of evolution of consciousness idea that I've, I've been exploring uh, aim at, to some degree, in those moments, you can kind of see how the two can come together. So uh, it may very well be, you know, our limited, you know, left brain, logical, a rational view that uh, makes it an either or uh but i would certainly say you know the perennial philosophy in the version um that comes across from say someone like Kathleen Rain uh who i've written about in my book lost knowledge of the imagination which incidentally towards the end of it touches on the sorts of things we're talking on now um you know she she was very critical of of traditionalism um she spoke of René Guénon who was the French uh, savant who was sort of the founder of it and um he was kind of a mentor to some degree of 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 Evola um but she what she didn't like about 
uh, Gainon and his version of traditionalism is that it lacked imagination. It lacked precisely the creative element that I would say an evolutionary view has. I mean, um, her, her tradition is, encompasses the imagination, which is, you know, ever new, ever fruitful. Uh, it, it is creating new things. Uh, um, so there's a combination there of, of the two, I would say, whereas with uh, Gainon and, and Evola, there's this whole idea that, you know, there was this absolute, you know, given dogma at some time in the past, then we've fallen away from it, and you know, hence the horrible, you know, Western civilization and modern world that we live in. And uh, I mean, they 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 really strike me as a kind of fundamentalist uh, esotericism. Not to say you can't get something out of it. I mean, they're both very brilliant thinkers, uh, and the, and many of their criticisms of the West are very inci- uh, uh, insightful, and we can profit by them. But I would say, you know, what they offer as an alternative, or the the cure is worse uh, than the disease. Well, uh, just a couple of closing points to make yeah. today, Gary. Um, one is that uh, it's a bit of a, a sort of a, a bit of a meme, a bit of a cliche, uh, particularly in the early 21st century, that change seems to be accelerating now. The pace of it mm. is uh, fantasy and reality are kind of blurring. That's a more recent development, but mm. and um, there's a lot of things that we could be sure about, or we thought we could be sure about before that we no longer can. That seems to be like that's going to be ongoing. Um, I don't mm. think we're going to sort of calm down or settle into some uh, some sort of like a, a plateau again where it's like, mm. okay, and breathe. I don't think that's yeah. the world we're in right now. And as far as everything that we've talked about is concerned, whether you think there's anything to the esoteric or non-material dimensions that we've spoken of, give that any credibility or not. One thing is sure, if you're not creating your own reality, however you define it, then somebody else is doing it for you. So if you want to do more than just survive this period of time, if you want to possibly even thrive, then you perhaps need to think about paying attention to that. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, reality is up for grabs uh, these days. Uh, And uh, more and more people understand that. And there's more and more facility uh for people to do something about that you know the technology you know we 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 exist more and more in this represented world this world we've created the electronic world whether it's you know uh social media or television or some other version of that and um that's increasingly becoming kind of the touchstone of reality uh, uh much more than the actual kind of hard physical natural world out there and one of the things i i say in the book is that 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 shift has sort of taken place where kind of the the, the hitherto sim, the simulacra you know the what what had hitherto been has been the simulation is now sort of taking precedent it's it's taking over from the reality and i i, I make the joke that trump again because he you know he's he's reprising the same role that he had as on the apprentice and now it's in real life and all that and he's kind of been pulled out of this unreal reality the electronic one in, into the old real reality but you know uh things are shifting and all that but w- w- one of the things that i i think of to kind of help grasp what we're going through is um an idea from the uh, german philosopher gene gebser um who died in uh, the early 70s and um he wrote a remarkable book called the ever-present origin uh, he wrote it during the 40s, and it was translated into English in, in the 80s. And in it, he talks about what he calls the structures of consciousness. And he charts uh, sort of um, the whole history of, um, you know, man, mankind, from um, prehistoric times up into, for him, contemporary times. 
um, uh, you know, the, sort of getting onto the middle of the 20th century. Um, and he says there's been sort of four previous, four structures of consciousness, and the one we're in now is called the mental rational. Uh, but it's going through what he calls its 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 deficient period when it's starting to break down, it's starting to collapse, it's overripe, um, it's performed its function, it's achieved what it's supposed to have achieved, and now it's starting to take itself apart to make to make space uh, to to make ready for the, this new structure which he calls the integral. And what I see around me, and I've been saying this in my books now for a few years, what I see around me is like just more and more evidence of precisely what Gebser was talking about. And it's what you're saying too, where, you know, everything we think we used to know, now it's all different. I mean, even today, I, uh, I don't know how many things on, when I was watching the news earlier, how many things came on that were something that was part of the old culture, and now it's questioned. And I'm not saying it's bad or good, I'm just saying this is what's taking place. Um, you know, for some people, yes, of course, everything needs to be torn down. It's so horrible and oppressive, and we need to, you know, put something else in its place. Or other people know this is a world that we know, uh, and we've, you know, we've, we've lived in this world, and we believe in it, and you're attacking it, and you're destroying it, and all that. And that's, that seems to be what, what's going on now. And, um, you know, Gebser said it's a necessary sort of, um, dismantling in order for this new integral structure, which is, for him, is supposed to integrate the previous structures into this new, this new one, which uh, I have to say, it's very difficult to sort of grasp exactly uh, what Gebser is saying because he's trying to use language to talk about something that doesn't exist yet in, in some ways. But but I think we can see evidence for this breakdown uh, around us, and you know, from sort of um, the, the philosophical heights of postmodernism and deconstructionism to just you know uh, the kind of antics that. Trump is going through every day where all of our ideas about how things usually uh, work and run are, you know, completely thrown out the window and, and it's kind of like helter-skelter all the time. So, um, and uh, this can be, you know, incredibly oppressive and threatening for people, but I think it's the kind of, uh, it's, it's sort of the wild water ride we have to go through right now to sort of get to the next thing. Yeah, personally, I, I feel like I wake up in the morning, I'm living in a some kind of hybrid of uh, Orwell's 1984 and Michael Murcock's uh, Chaos at the End of Time stories, <laughs> where, you know, reality is inherently unstable and in a state of constant flux, and not just the reality of, of ideas, but almost like physical reality. Mm, mm, and, mm. And, you know, increasingly, nothing surprises me, and I'm just wondering what the hell next. And it is a wild water ride. Uh, final point, Gary. Um, in many ways, Trump, for me, is a case of cometh the hour, cometh the man, a lot of people associate that with positive developments, you know, mm. things were really, really bad and this guy, this woman came along yeah. and they, they saved us. But I just think it's what's appropriate. So it's, it's value negative in that sense. But mm. do you feel that, uh, I know you touched upon this slightly earlier that, that Trump is just getting started in some way. You mentioned if he was going to be impeached or thrown out, that should already have happened. Um, is it going to get to the point where in the next US election comes along? that people will elect a ham sandwich, anything other than Trump? <laughs> or do you, do you think there's there's further uh, surprises in store for us down the line, some of them nasty for people who are not mm. fans of Trump? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's pretty it's pretty traditional in, in U.S. politics for the president to have two terms because usually um, people say, well, he doesn't have enough time to you know get his work done, so the incumbent tends to stay. Um, although with you know, someone like Trump and and the, and the um, huge uh, kind of anti-Trump sentiment uh, that might not be the case, but uh, I would think he'd be able to rally. 
you know, his supporters. And again, I, I don't keep an eye on this all the time, but one of the last things I sort of saw peripherally was that his, um, you know, uh, popularity rating is, uh, approval rating is up. Um, it's gone back up. Um, you know, it was actually quite low not too long ago, but now it's gone up and all that. So, I mean, um, I don't know. I, I, I'd be surprised if he, if he isn't, um, you know, if he doesn't win in 2020. One of the things I've thought about is what would be, what would a kind of progressive, for sake of a better word, backlash be like, you know, um, if you have, you know, someone voted in in 2024, uh, and the whole idea is never again, you know, well, never again will we allow anything like this, and what, what kind of measures might be put in place then, uh, you know, for all the best intentions and for protective reasons, but to ensure that, you know, something like this wouldn't happen. So that, 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 that troubles me, uh, as much. You know, uh, I, I personally think, you know, intelligent people, and I know this will sound patronizing, but people with intelligence, with some kind of insight, they basically just need how to, you know, uh, keep their heads down and keep awake and keep alert now, uh, because everything's depending on, on, on them. And, um, this means, as we said before, not getting caught up in all of the, um, kind of shouting rhetoric and, you know, uh, the sort of barking that, that goes on, which doesn't help at all. Well, Gary, today we've been talking about uh, your book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. That's available everywhere. Uh, Just before we sign off, just tell listeners about your website, anything you may be working on for the future, and just anything else you'd like to share. Well, if you want to get in touch, you can reach me at uh, www.garylockman.co.uk. I'm also on Facebook uh, and on Twitter. And um, what I'm working on at the moment is uh, sort of a follow-up book uh, about Russia. It's not quite exactly the same thing, uh, but it's uh, the idea of the return of Holy Russia. So I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, once again, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolutely my pleasure, Greg. Thank you very much.